I just prayed about power, like asking God's power to actually come and meet us here. And what's interesting about our passage today is that the power of God was used through this just little boy, this little boy. He became the channel of God's power. Uh, by him sharing his lunch, uh, a miraculous sign happened. And uh, I think it can be said because whenever we look at the gospel, what we have in the good news of Jesus is this, this beautiful, manifold, um, multifaceted diamond that the, the longer that we stare at it, the more we see it glimmer, the, the more light actually comes, comes out of it. And so what we're going to see today as an aspect of God's grace and the, the proclamation of the good news is this, is that through Christ, he has connected himself with our helplessness and made us channels of God's power. That's one of the multifaceted pictures of what the good news is, is that you and I, ordinary human sinful people, can be used as a conduit or a channel of God's power here on this earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that good news? Isn't that cool? Does that get you excited? Because that's what God does with this little boy, this poor little boy. We know that he was poor because he had barley loaves. This wasn't, gluten, this wasn't the gluten-free option in the, you know, in, the, in the marketplace. This wasn't something that, was, that uh, was hip or cool or anything like this. This was, um, as scholars tell us, that barley was known as the grain of the poor. And so it doesn't matter how far or where you're at, this, is, uh, this good news, this gospel is actually for you. It doesn't matter what your social status is or anything like this. And whenever I read this passage about God feeding the, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, what I typically think about is whenever I think of the loaves and the fishes, I, I think of this Instagram-worthy, you know, like basket with the checker, you know, like little a blanket ready to go in like these long French you know, loaves of bread that are just kind of sticking out of the basket and just ready for a cute picture or something like that. But no, the, the, the scholars tell us that these loaves are most likely like biscuits. And the pieces of fish were not full-on fish, you know, like a red snapper or anything. These, these were just maybe four ounces here. Four ounces of meat, five biscuits. Think of, think of the appetizer of Red Lobster if you go over there after this. You know, just those, you know, garlic biscuits and buttery biscuits and stuff, cheddar biscuits, whatever they are, um, that you usually eat right before you eat the entire entree. This is what this poor little boy has. And he's prepared. He's prepared because he's with this caravan of people that heard that the Messiah is here, so they went out to go and see them. And these people... These people, like some of them were there to see a show, but most of them recognized that they were needy. They recognized that they were needy. They recognized that they were oppressed. They recognized that they needed a savior. They recognized that Jesus was someone that was extraordinarily special. And just as a quick aside, I want to point out something and ask you a question. Redeemer Church, do you know that you're needy? Do you know that you are actually needy? That you need, you need God's power to work in in and through you all the time. We're going through, this is an aside, we're going through a month long of prayer. We've asked God to use us greatly as a church. We're partnering with other churches within the community and within the town to say, let's pray for every single soul here in Wichita Falls and in North Texas and Wichita County. 
Let's pray and ask God to move in a powerful way. And as I've been interacting with people during this, as you can imagine, because this is your heart and this is my heart, as, as I confess, prayer, prayer is hard. Anyone just crushing it in the prayer life? You go ahead and raise your hand. Just like, you know what? I think I'm praying too much. You know, that's, that's me, Cody. I just need to come clean, confess my sins. I'm praying too much. You know, it's just getting in the way of other things. No, none of us have ever said that. None of us have ever said that. And a lot of times we assume what we need to have a good, fervent, healthy prayer life is we need, you know what? We, I, I'm just not disciplined enough. I don't have that self-control, fruit of the spirit. I need some more discipline. But the reality is, is we actually have to know and understand that you and I are needy. We belong to God. We belong to God. We don't believe that. We believe that we're self-sufficient. We believe that we are autonomous, self-sufficient, perfectly well-adjusted human beings in the 21st century, right? That's how I feel oftentimes. I, I, I take the privileges and blessings that the Lord has given me, and I just say, you know what? I did this myself. I just I pulled myself up my, by my bootstraps. I did it. This was, this was just me. And so prayer, naturally, for someone that feels that way, that I just confess, is going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. And this is why your prayer and my prayer life is lackluster. It's lackluster because we don't need more discipline. You don't need more self-control. You need the recentering of your life around the thing that is ultimately worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy. You need better worship if you want to be, have a healthy prayer life. You need actually your life to revolve around the things that are, you deem as worthy. And is that God? Because you devote, you know this, you and I devote our time to what we think is worthy of our time, whether that be our comfort, Instagram, you know, uh, whatever hobby project that you're doing, we, we devote time to it. It's, so it's not that we're not disciplined, it's that the object of our lives is revolving around something other than God. Like the, the centerpiece of our life is revolving around something that, it, that isn't God. It's being the best, being the best pilot I can be. It's being, being the best dad or employee or, or mom or whatever it is. Uh, the, the object of our life, uh, the, the centerpiece of our life is revolving around the thing that we think is ultimately worthy of our attention and our effort. And so I think this month the Lord is calling us to prayer. Is calling us to prayer. And I asked you this question last week, and I'm going to ask you again. If God answered all your prayers from last week with a yes, how many people would be in the kingdom this week? Let that settle in. Let that saddle, settle in. If God answered all your prayers with, from last week with a resounding yes, what's going to be the result of it? What's going to be on, what's going to be yes? Is it just going to be that your, uh, you, you know, your flight instructor forgot that bad flight? Is it going to be that your boss for, forgot that bad performance? Is it going to be that your kids just kind of forget about all your grumpiness and lack of grace whenever you're at home? What is it going to be? Is it all going to be revolving around you or is it going to be revolving around other people? What is it going to be? My hope, I'm finishing this aside, my hope is that this Tuesday, as I'm calling you to prayer and to fasting, that the, that the Lord fills this town with hungry bellies and hearts that are solely devoted to God, what are you doing in this world? What are you doing in my community? And may they experience you. Amen? Can we all agree? Amen? Let's do that. So let's get back to the text. This little boy is needy. 
He's needy, he's insufficient, he's insignificant. And yet the power of God has worked through him. And so the message of of today is in the hands of Jesus, the powerless become powerful. The insignificant become significant. And the loaves that you have in your life turn into a feast. They turn into a feast. And so Jesus says that my power can work through you by the Holy Spirit. That's what he said. Remember that, that, that part in the Gospel of Mark whenever he says, if you have faith enough, you can tell that mountain, throw yourself into the sea, and it will do it. It will do it. The, the power of God wants to work in and through you. And what Jesus wants to tell his disciples is he wants to communicate to, to them that nothing is impossible with me working through, in and through your life. But Jesus also wants to teach Philip and the other disciples that you have to get to the end of yourself. You have to get to the end of yourself in order for me to work all things through you. And whenever I say all things through you, that doesn't mean becoming a billionaire or that doesn't mean being able to dunk a basketball or anything like that. It means having real life come through you. Healthy marriages that that, that were really on the rocks being restored with joy, life, in life. That means that a a thousand generations from whatever generation you're in right now will be walking with the Lord and enjoying and delighting him forever. That means that neighborhoods within our community are going to be filled with hospitality, evangelism, grace, care. But notice before, before that, that power can be infused within the disciples and the little boy, notice he stresses them out first. He stresses them out. He makes them nervous. He takes the little boy's lunch. But, but this is weird, right? Because in verse 6, you notice what it says in verse 6? Jesus was stressing them out by asking them a bunch of questions. But in verse 6, it said he himself already knew what he was going to do. What's this game that he's playing, right? He's play, playing this little game. Well, Jesus, listen to me. This is important. Jesus is a teacher. He wants to teach you something. He's a teacher to his disciples. And so Jesus is teaching a couple of things through this passage. Number one, Jesus is teaching us that his power upholds us, that that drives us, upholds us, and keeps us in this life. And number two, his power can be used through us. His power can be used through us. So let's knock those out one by one, shall we? First, his power is what upholds us. Let me explain some of the backstory of what's going on here in the feeding of the 5,000. You probably know uh, this story. You probably heard it, right? It's one of the most famous things that Jesus ever did. This is, in fact, this is the only miracle that was mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only one that all four gospel writers said, we got to put that in there. We got to put that in there. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? Yeah, that blew our mind. That was insane. That was awesome. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said, no, this is really, really Important. You might be saying, why is that so important? Why was that so important? Well, it might be obvious, but there's probably some in this room that says, isn't this just a kid's story? Isn't that just a, isn't this one of those fantasyful things that Jesus might have done that probably blown out, was blown out of proportion later on down the road whenever they were writing this stuff down? But no, think about it objectively. The people back there in these days, they were not stupid. They were not stupid. I know that's what secular history teaches us, that ancient people are stupid. But have you ever read the works of Paul and been like, you know what, that, guy, that guy's just dumb. 
Paul is dumb. No, it's articulate, it's beautiful, it's intricate. And this is what the people of God were like back at the turn of the century. So these people aren't stupid. So why, why was this put in there is it to, to be in? One, because it happened. It happened, and guess what? It's hard to, it's hard to keep this, if this really happened, from the region, right? It's really hard. It said that this, this came across, and they only counted 5,000 men. You know what this really meant? It meant that they, were, they counted 5,000 households. 5,000 households, or it could have been, there's probably some single men in this group, but most likely they had 2.2 kids, or back then it was probably more like 6.2, and so there could have been, there could have been upwards of 15 to 25,000 people in this crowd. And you think that a miracle happened where a bunch of people sat down and then all of a sudden they had the biggest feast of their life. And then you tell a fake story later on down the road about, did Jesus actually do this? Well, you got 25,000 witnesses that I promise you, if you just received a five loaves and two fish that turned into tons and tons and tons of bread and fish into a community, guess what? People are gonna be talking about that whenever they go home, right? They're definitely gonna be talking about this thing. And so this is an external witness to the validity of the claims that there was something really special about Jesus. There's something really special about Jesus. And so this is why it's mentioned in all of these things. But notice what's really interesting in this passage. Why didn't Jesus, why didn't Jesus just say, hey, uh, and take as much bread home with you as you want? It was like, obviously this was a miracle. Take it home with you, show your neighbors. No, what does he do? He, sa- he tells his 12 disciples, go and take 12 heaping baskets and fill up as much as you can. And and I want you to picture this image of what was going on here. Because I think a lot of people get confused of what's going on here? Why is this actually happening? What's up with the 12 baskets? And imagine 12 people stretched out across the stage and Jesus standing before them. And he says, how many baskets we got? And he's like, one, two, three, all the way to 12. What is he doing there? Why, Why not leave it for the birds? Why not leave it for the stray dogs? Why not tell them to take it home? I'll tell you why. Because location, location, location. You know where this happened? This happened at the Sea of Galilee in a very Jewish community who was looking for the Jewish Messiah. And Jesus, during this passage that we'll see in John chapter 6, he says, I'm actually the true bread that came down from heaven. Your, your, your mothers and fathers, they ate the manna, remember that, in the Old Testament that fell from heaven? They ate the manna that fell from heaven, but yet that bread came from God, and yet they died. I'm the true bread that came from heaven. I'm the true bread that came from heaven. And if you eat of me and you partake with me, you will never die. You will have eternal life. And so he counts all the way to 12 so that they would remember that this is the Jewish Messiah who has come for the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet he did not just come. He did not just come as manna, which remember the manna? He said, don't take up more than you need every single day. Only take what you need to eat per day. God sustained them moment by moment, day by day. But with 12 heaping baskets in front of the people, 
in front of his disciples right now. You know what he's saying? I'm the bread that overflows. I'm the Lord of the feast. Come and eat from me, and you will never be without. That's the point of what he is doing with the baskets. He is, remember, he's a teacher. Jesus is a teacher. And Jesus was a, specifically, a Jewish teacher. A Jewish teacher. And Jewish, Jewish rabbis, they taught in pictures. You ever heard the story, ever heard the saying that a picture is worth a thousand words? That's why this Jewish rabbi was teaching them that I am the bread from heaven. Because it was communicating to them that, oh, he is like the manna that came down that sustained them in the wilderness and in the desert. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what he is doing. Notice that Greek thinkers, which were kind of the lineage of that Gentile thinkers, they think in list and in bullet points. They think through explanation. So whenever we read, this is a kind of a biblical aside, just going to help you understand the Bible. Whenever you read the New Testament, specifically the Apostle Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostles to the Greek thinking people in the region, he explains. He explains all these core doctrines of the faith through long explanations and chapters. Jesus teaches through parables and stories and pictures. You see the difference there? And what Jesus is trying to do is he is not trying to fill up their minds with bullet points about the goodness and grace of God. He wanted them to taste and to see and experience that the Lord was actually good. That the Lord was actually good. And that's what we see here to this very Jewish audience of 5,000 households. Is God was trying to explain to them that Jesus was trying to explain to them that I am the Lord. I'm the Lord that gave you bread in the wilderness and I'm the true bread that is coming to you now. Not that you can have what you need every single day so that you can overflow. We said this a couple of weeks back or a couple of months back, rather, whenever he turned the water into wine, that Jesus is actually Lord of the feast. That's why he came. What do you think about whenever you think about Christianity? Do you think that Jesus just came because he wants me to kind of just morally conform my life into this little box and be grumpy all the time? And and maybe, uh, you know, I, I can't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do and all that stuff. Really, he wants me to sing songs that I don't know the words and it's kind of embarrassing and everyone else kind of mutters around with me. What do you think about whenever you think of Christianity? Do you think that God is just trying to get you under his thumb and say, obey, obey, obey? Or do you think that, no, Jesus is Lord of the feast. He's the one that turns water into wine. He's the one that gives bountiful feasts to all of his people. He is the Lord of abundance, and he wants us to thrive and flourish. What do you think about? Do you think of him as Lord of the feast, who wants you to obey, not because he wants your moral conformity. He wants you to obey so that you will experience what he has experienced for all of eternity, love, joy, peace, holiness. This is why he wants you to obey. Because he wants you to experience life, which is truly life. Or do you believe that God is actually stingy? Do you think he wants you to obey because God is holding out on you? That the world can have its fun, but not you. You go to the monastery and pray. And, and don't, do, don't do anything else. And have bad haircuts and robes and stuff like that. Is that what you think about? Because uh, listen to me, listen to me, look at me right now. If, you're, if your mindset has ever been, God is probably holding out on me, you're believing the same lie that went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
That was the same lie that the serpent told Eve. You know what? God, you won't really die. God knows that you're going to be like him. God's holding out on you. God's a killjoy. God is stingy. He doesn't want your ultimate happiness. He doesn't want your ultimate freedom. You're believing the exact same lie. No, Jesus is trying to show us through this. No, I'm the Lord of abundance. I'm the Lord that loves you. I'm the Lord that wants to give you all good things. Life, which is truly life. That's what we see right here. He turns the water into wine. He makes the loaves into a feast. And Jesus, what he wants us to know is that it doesn't matter who, how insignificant you actually feel in this room. In God's hands, he can use you, yes, you, just like he used this boy, as a channel for his power. And we haven't even cr- scratched the surface of it. We haven't even scratched the surface of how great God's power actually, actually is. But if you place what you have in his, in, in his hands, then his power will come through you like a supernova. If you humble yourself into the dust, his power will come through you like a supernova, even to transform you to the point. Transform you to the point to the things that are bringing death in you go away. He's the God of resurrection. He's the God that brings life, which is truly life. So that's point number one. Point number one is you have to understand that God is upholding us by the word of his power, and he wants to give us life, which is truly life. That's what his power does. Number two, how can you be used as a channel of his power? How can you be used as a conduit for his power? First step, man, it's hard. I'm sorry. But you have to see that you are ultimately powerless. I know. I know. That's a, that's a hard one to swallow. That you are powerless. You want to be used, uh, you want the power of God to be used through you, you have to humble yourself and say, I ultimately am powerless. Look, it says that in verse 6, he said, he said all of this, he stressed them out. Why? Because he, want, he wanted, he already knew what he was going to do. He just wanted to teach them. He wanted to get them involved. Jesus, the teacher, shows and gets his disciples to confess that they are actually powerless to help this situation. Philip, what should we do here, man? we got like 5,000 people. How much money do we need? What are we going to do? Philip, why don't we solve this problem? We need to be hospitable and compassionate. What are we going to do? And Philip's like, um, anyone else? I don't, uh, I don't know. Uh, what, can, what can we do? Do you see this crowd? There's never been anything like this. This is insane. First megachurch following Jesus around the desert in the sea. What are we going to do? How are we going to feed them? I have no idea. 200 denarii. That's like years, years wages, and that's just going to give them a little piece of bread. What, what do you mean, Jesus? We can't do anything here. And he's like, finally, now that you've gotten there, watch. Now that you've gotten to the end of yourself, watch what I can do in and through you. That's, that's the whole point of this. Remember first, uh, or 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul is talking here and he says, My grace, this is what the Lord told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. It's actually perfected in weakness. And this is the rule. This is the rule that we see all throughout life. God's power cannot work through you unless you humble yourself into the dust and you admit that you're actually powerless. And I know what some of y'all are thinking. Hmm, hmm, that sounds like a stingy God to me. 
That sounds like God, that sounds like God is stingy, maybe even cruel. Why does, he, why does he make me have to be humble before he can use me? Why? Well, it's just a, listen, you know this and I know this. Let's think about this for two seconds. This is a universal principle that is throughout all of life. The universal principle, if you've ever been to a, through a 12-step program, which is common for Christians, uh, dealing with addictions or something like that, if you've ever gone through a 12-step program, what is the number one thing that you have to admit? You have to admit that I am powerless over this addiction. And they've been, using, they've been using that tool for almost 100 years now, and it's so important. You cannot move on to point two until you admit your powerlessness over the addiction, over whatever addiction it is. And the, the universal principle is that the way up is actually down. The way to exaltation is through humiliation. It's the way that God has sown in every aspect of the fabric of life so that we would understand that we, don't try, that we should not try to live our lives for ourselves, but we should humble ourselves. Why? So that we can be exalted by God and God alone. But, but so much of us realize that, you know what, I'm actually pretty self-sufficient, Cody. I get what you're saying. I've never been to a 12-step program. I understand how it's helpful for those, uh, maybe those types of people. But guess what, man? I'm well-educated. I'm, I'm actually hardworking. I know how to set goals and how to, uh, how to accomplish them. And, and just because the Bible says that I have to uh, give up all my power to receive the power of God, my power seems to be working my way seems to, seems to be working. I've had the right education. I've had the right connections. I've had the right parents. I've had the right talent. I, I, I've had all these successes. And so if you want me to kind of pull an audible and just completely shift, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Some of you might be saying that. I don't think I'm ready for that. But listen to me, and I mean this humbly, if that's your thought process right now, I bet you're under the age of 26. No offense, all right? You're probably under the age of 26 because you're probably only thinking in one category of life. You're probably only thinking, I have mastered my, my, uh, my uh, professional life. I've mastered my professional life. I've gone through my education. I've done exactly what I've needed. I graduated at the top of my class. I got the job I wanted. I got, the, I got in the program that I wanted. And therefore, things are going pretty well. And I don't want to give up anything that I got because I figured out a pretty good formula, and it's working for me. You're probably under the eight. Listen, that's so narrow. That's, is your life wrapped up in your profession? Is that all that you are? Of course not. You know that. I know that. We all know that in this room. And what God does in his mercy, listen to me, in his mercy, he will begin, the older you get, bring moment by moment where you sense, oh, I'm actually powerless over this situation. This relationship I'm in, I can't control that person. What in the world? What's wrong with, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? And you'll begin to sense you're powerless in in your emotional health. You're like, man, I feel like I'm doing all the right things. I feel like life is going good. I got the money that I want. I got the house that I want. I got all this stuff. But there's just something in my heart that I cannot shake. There's a, there, there's a, there's a darkness in there that I feel like I had, no matter what I do, I cannot get rid of it. So maybe your relational, um, you, you realize that you're relationally powerless, you're emotionally powerless, and you believe 
And, and trust me, the older you get, you'll get to the point where you're completely spiritually powerless. Completely spiritually powerless. You'll begin to ask all the why questions that you've kind of stuffed down for a really long time. Why am I doing this? Why is this here? Why are we, why are we operating this way? Why, why does this any, any of this even matter? And what happens by God's grace and mercy is you begin, the longer you've been going through life, is you begin to sense your helplessness and your powerlessness over, over, the, over the circumstances in your life itself. That's what happens in life. And I say that's a grace. I say that's a grace. You want to know why? Because God wants to get you to the end of your rope. God wants to actually get you to the end of the rope so that you'll look up and you'll be like, oh, my way is not working. Lord, I need your way. My good friend Gary McGregor said this to me this week. I don't know how I should have taken it, but this is what he said. He said, Cody, there's three types of people in the world. There's stupid people. I said, I'm listening. Um, He said, there's stupid people that don't learn from their mistakes. There's smart people that do learn from their mistakes. And then there's wise people that learn from other people's mistakes. He goes, so do you want to be smart or wise? (laughs) I was like, thank you for not saying stupid. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, Do you get the point? you get the point I'm trying to make? If right now you sense that everything is going pretty good for you, why don't you not choose to say, I'll just be a smart person, so whenever this um, shift in life happens and I'll just adjust, why don't you be a wise person and humble yourself into the dust and say, God, I know that that right now there's going to be aspects of my life that I have absolutely no control over, and so let me turn everything over to you who is the source of ultimate life. Because Jesus wants to say, <laughs> Jesus wants to say this, how's your life going? And imagine what, I, imagine what I can do in and through your life if you give even your poor little five loaves and two fish and you place them in my hands instead of in your hands. You see, God isn't a good teacher. Jesus is also a good surgeon. He's a good surgeon. And what good surgeons do is, yes, they cut you and yes, you bleed, but they're cutting you, why? to remove the sickness and the disease out of you, to get the tumor and the cancer out. And Jesus isn't just cutting people and just being like, yep, good cut, okay, it's going to be just a little bit of blood, let's move on. No, he doesn't operate that way. He cuts you, yes, but he cuts you so that to remove the disease. See, he's a good surgeon, he's a good teacher. And the first step that he wants us to, to, to grasp, if, he, if, he, if we're going to be conduits for his power and grace in this life, is we have to admit our powerlessness. we got to humble ourselves so that the power of God can work in and through us. The second thing that you have to do, the second thing that you have to do and what I have to do, is we have to place everything we got in his hands. We have to place everything we have in his hands. Look at verse 11 again. Verse 11, it says, Then Jesus took the loaves. The boy uh, actually had the gift of administration. The boy thought, or maybe he was sent, with, um, sent uh, uh, with food from his mother or something, and he, uh, everyone else was starving, but he had some food, all right? This is a forward-thinking guy, forward-thinking guy, and um, what had to happen? Jesus took it. Jesus took away the thing. He lost control over the loaves and the fishes that he worked hard, that he um, administratively decided that he needed to do whenever he went up, took, took off on this journey. He lost control over the things that he had in his life. But look what he gained. Look what he gained. 
This little boy had to lose his five loaves and two fishes, but then whenever he gave them up to God, he got way more out of it than he could ever have gotten just from the five and the two. You see how that works? You see how that principle applies to you and to me? Dear church, listen to me. You can either have control over your life or you can be used by the power of God here, here in this earth. But listen, you cannot have both. You can either have control over your life or you can be used by God powerfully, but you cannot, you be, or you cannot have both. Do you want control? Really, how is control over your own life actually working? Isn't your sense of white-knuckling and trying to control your little life, isn't that the source of your anxiety? Isn't that the source of your powerlessness? Isn't that the source of all of your fear that you might lose control over this or that? Isn't it the thing that makes you most proud? Isn't the thing that makes you most arrogant, the thing that you're holding on and gripping onto? Give it up to God. Give it up to God so that he can actually use, use you and use what you have and use your talents. Hand it all over to him. Listen, I know it's scary, but it's wonderful, just like the gospel. Yes, it's scary having a relationship with God Almighty, but it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's what we were made. It's actually what we were made for. It's the gospel truth that we need to embrace. Turn everything over to him. So how do we do this? How do we apply this message today? What does it mean for you to put the loaves of your life into his hands? What does that mean, Redeemer? How do we do this? And again, just like my, one of my earlier points, I'm sorry, but this is true. You have to obey. How do you, how do you, how do you put the loaves of your talents and your life into the hands of God? You have to obey with faith in his power. You have to obey the commandments of God. You have to obey what his will is. This is what you actually have to do. And listen, I'm not saying that your obedience is the thing that's going to lead you to salvation. It's Christ's obedience in your place that leads to salvation. But evidence, evidence that you're walking with him, that you trust him, and that you want to be used by God is measured by your obedience. It's measured. How do you look at the obedience of the Lord? Whenever I say this, what image is popping in your mind? You say, oh, man, that's that stingy God again, right? Is it that stingy God that wants to just keep me under his thumb? No. Remember, Lord of hosts, Lord of the feast, he wants to give you everything. He wants to give you everything. He just wants you to turn over what you got. This is, this is our God. This is our God. He wants you to obey, not as a duty, but to give you delight here in this life. That's, that's why you obey. Earlier we sang this. Earlier we sang, I am yours and now I am free. I'm yours, now I'm free. The American way of thinking about freedom in the American church, maybe not the American church, but at least the American way, is this. I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm free to do whatever I want, and no one can tell me. It's the libertarian way of thinking of freedom. I can do whatever I want, and no one should be, no one should care, not even God. No, but what the Bible is talking about in freedom is you have freedom to obey him to actually have life which is truly life. Whenever you open up the Bible and you read the commands of God, this isn't him trying to be a killjoy. This is him saying, I'm the author of life. I'm the maker of heaven and earth, including you. I made you. This is how it's supposed to operate. And so whenever we walk in obedience, what we experience is freedom, is actual freedom to where we're experiencing, oh, 
this is how life is supposed to go. This is what it was all made for. This is how I'm supposed to act. This is how I'm supposed to interact with my God. Your obedience leads you to freedom. Your obedience actually leads you to freedom, which is truly freedom. And I think there's so many of us in this room, and it's just so natural. It's just so natural. We have this sense of powerless in our life. And what we do is we don't turn, oh, like, we don't turn to God and say, oh, I feel powerless. Now, Now let me turn to the powerful. What do we do whenever we feel powerless? We say, God, why? Why is my life going this way? Why have you gotten me to the end of myself? I have been so powerful. Uh, the way, my way has worked out all the time. And now I'm at the end of my rope. God, how dare you? How dare you take me to the end of, uh, end of my rope? Why did you do this? Why? Well, listen, friends. So many of us, whenever we get to the end of that uh, uh, end of our rope and what I'm talking about, what we need to recognize and what we need to, we need to see is whenever we're at the end of, whenever we're at the end of our rope, it's just this, is that God really is getting you there. Not, not so that you turn around and you say, God, why? But that you look up And you say, God, I'm here. I know that I'm at the end. And now I know that I feel like I have no further place to go down. The only way I can turn is to stop trying to have control over my life and to turn over all that I have to you. See, so many of us say, I'll obey God whenever he fixes all the bad things in my life. Right? God, maybe I'll obey you whenever you turn this ship around because right now I'm angry at you. And listen, I understand that. I understand that. But friends, what you need to do is you need to turn to God and say, now, now I will obey, trusting that your power is made perfect in my weakness. Now I'll obey. You see, Cody, there's some things in my life that I don't know how to obey. It's so confusing. I don't know. Do I need to fape or do I need to fly this F-16? Do I need to get to look for a new job right now? Do I need to change my major? You know, do I need to move over here or move over there? What do, what do I need to do? I don't know how to obey the will of God. Everything seems to be up in the air. Listen to me. Whenever you get there, you know what you need to do? Uh, you need to start obeying the things that are very clear. Obey, in the, obey the areas of Scripture that are very, very clear. Are you praying for your neighbors and your friends to know Jesus? Are you praying for them? Wives, are you respecting your husband out of your devotion to the Lord? Are you doing that? That's a clear passage. Are you being radically generous with your resources? Whenever you're looking at the resources that God has given you, are you saying, okay, I don't really know what to do here and here, but I know he told me to be generous. Are you being gener- Generous. Are you, are you devoting yourself to the, to the word? Are you forgiving people and not being bitter at them? Are, are you searching the scriptures, not just, not just looking at them and doing a little checklist thing? Are you searching them, listening for the voice of God? Are you displaying acts of mercy without railing against society that it's not as merciful as you are? Are you doing all these things that are very clear in scripture? Listen, whenever things are confusing, you don't know what the will of God is. Just obey what you know the will of God is. And then God will begin to work and to move. Because this is how his power is working through his people. Listen, are you obeying what you know? Or are you resisting the Lord? Demanding for him to make your life easier 
before you begin obedience. Dear friends, don't you realize in this life that God is your teacher? Have you ever thought about the course of your sanctification? I'm talking specifically to Christians in the room right now. Look at me, Christian. Do you understand the gentleness of the Lord? That God, whenever I teach my kids something, I want them to get it really quick. All right? I'm just like, I want you to obey now. Do you get it? All right, discipline, obey now. And then, all right, didn't do it again, tomorrow. Surely this is only going to take me a week to get them to obey this one thing that I want them to do. Don't throw your spaghetti on the ground, son. Don't, just don't do it, all right? You're going to get a little slap on the hand. You're going to get a little stern looking from dad and mom. Don't do it. Surely that's only going to take a week to learn. Do you know the gentleness of the Lord? who sanctifies his people over the course of a lifetime? Have you marveled at that? Has that led you to worship? You're like, God, you're teaching me over the course of these 60 years? You're teaching me over the course of these 50 years how you want me to be like Jesus? Notice his gentleness, his kindness, his compassion, his love for you. Don't you realize that all of this life is to shape you and to make you more like Jesus. Notice the gentleness of the Lord. And may we say thank you. Thank you for not being like the harsh dad that expects things to be done in a week. God, Our God is not like that. Our God is not like that. And so we know, because that's the, the ultimate reality that the Bible is teaching, we know we can place everything we have in his hands because he wants to instruct us in the ways that is like which is truly life. You say, Cody, how do I know this? How do I know that God is actually for me? How do I, how do I know that God wants to use his power in and through, through me? It brings me to, to point number two. You have to believe that God's power is for you because look at what Paul says. For if God is for us, then who can be against us? Remember what Jesus, uh, how Jesus reacted to Pilate whenever he was on trial? Pilate, who was a, the, the, Roman, the, the Roman leader that uh, was over this area, the Roman governor that was over this area, and he, said, he looked at Jesus and said, you know I have the power to sentence you to death or to set you free. You know I have the power to do that, Jesus, so why don't you answer my question so I can get on with my day? And how did Jesus look at this guy who could have killed him or could have set him free? He looked boldly right in his face and he says, you would have no power over me if it were not, if it were not given to you from above from my father. What boldness. He, Jesus knew that the power of God was working for him. It was working absolutely for him. And we see, we see this also in the, the Apostle Paul's life. We read it earlier about my grace is made sufficient for you. And Paul had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn actually was. It was some, maybe some affliction, some ailment or or some nagging struggle that he was going through that he just couldn't get over. Imagine if it was actually a thorn. What if we get to heaven someday and and Paul's like, no, that was a thorn. I I told you what it was. It actually was a thorn. It was just stuck in there and it hurt, you know. But, um, But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And look what it says right after that. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my powerlessness or in my weakness so that the power of God might rest upon me. Redeemer, do you want this? 
Do you believe that the power of God is working actually for you? That he's sanctifying you over the course of a lifetime? Look what he did with this little boy. This little boy echoes throughout eternity just because he gave over the, the tokens of his poverty. So listen, do you trust God? That's really my call today. Do you trust him? Are you willing to give him all the talents that you have in your life? Are you willing to turn it all over to him? Are you obeying him? Do you trust him? Say, Cody, I just don't know. I don't know if any of this is real. I don't know if God is actually for me. How, how can I know that? Well, notice what it says in verse 14. Uh, hopefully you still have your Bibles open. And after he did all this, look what happened. It said, this, now we know, the crowd, the 5,000, the 5, maybe 25,000 said this. said, this is indeed the prophet who isn't to come into the world. And then they try to take him and make him the king. And you might be saying, Cody, who is this prophet? Well, quick Old Testament that you need to know in order to understand this. Moses, whenever he was leaving, leading his people, he said, there's going to be a prophet that comes after me who is greater than me. And listen, Moses was a big, stinking deal, all right? Moses did all these miracles. He led the people out of slavery. He was, he was a, a type and a shadow of Jesus in all that he did and operated. One time Moses was standing at the Red Sea, lifted his staff over it. The power of God was working through him. The sea parted. But interestingly, whenever this prophet, Moses, did that, right before that, God went to him and said, Moses, why are you grumbling against me? And if you look at Acts chapter 14, and you look at that passage, it never mentioned that Moses was ever grumbling against God. It said the people of God were grumbling against God. And what God did is he looked at Moses and he said, why do you grumble against me? And then Moses says there's going to be a prophet greater than me. Why bring any of that up? Because what happened with Moses is the power of God was working through him and also, at the same time, the guilt of the people were placed upon him. And what they realize is this, Jesus, he is the prophet. That the guilt of the people is going to be placed upon him. And the power of God is going to be working through him. So that all of those that believe that my guilt is upon the head of Jesus and say that that is my God. I cannot trust, I cannot trust myself. I am powerless to control the, the circumstances of my life. I need help from on high. Whenever you look to Christ and whenever you look to God, what will happen is the power of God will be mediated through Jesus and infuse you with the Holy Spirit so that you can walk and obey and have life, which is truly life. Has that ever happened to you? Have, do you have the Lord of the feast living and working within you? Do you understand that Jesus is the mediator between the guilt of the people and the power of God? And have you trusted that for yourself? My call, dear friends, is that you would not leave this place today until you figure out what I mean by Jesus being the true prophet that had the guilt of the people upon his head. Die for it, and then three days later raise from the dead so that then the power of God can be displayed through all of his people until it gets all, until it gets all the way to the ends of the earth. I'm going to pray, and my call to all of us today 
is to respond appropriately to this prophet, to King Jesus, who could do miraculous things. But the most miraculous thing that he was pointing to was this. I died for your sins so that you might live in obedience in this life. Let's pray.